0: Hey, what's up, storytellers? I am so excited to kick off our first episode of the new year with one of the most requested guests for the show, Natasha Nyan. Before we jump into Natasha's introduction, I wanted to thank Epic Reads for sponsoring today's episode. I am thrilled to present a mini interview with author Ben Phillip to chat about his debut novel, The Field Guide to the North American Teenager that just released this week. Ben, I am so excited to have you on. Thanks for having me. What are you most excited about right now? What's going on?
1: Hi, my name is Ben Phillip. Right now, I'm really in the middle of my second book, Cracking That Manuscript. I just got that eureka moment for that particular story, which is really hard to put into words. But like, I feel like every writer knows that moment while they're doing like dishes where a story clicks into place. and and that happened for me, like, last night while I was working laundry.
0: Congratulations! Thank you!
1: Yeah, happy <laughs> <laughs> about that one. But aside from that, it's just really excited to get the field guide to the North American teenager into people's hands, and hopefully they'll they'll like it.
0: Why don't you give us a snapshot? Uh, sure. It's the story
1: of Norris Kaplan, a black teenager who hails from Canada. His parents are Haitian immigrants, and... The book starts when he has to move to Austin, Texas in the middle of the school year. He's sort of like dropped into the big prototypical American high school experience. And he's kind of a sarcastic, loner, asshole sort of character. (laughs) And he quickly sort of assumes that his life is going to be on the sidelines. So he just takes to the margins of the school to just judge everyone before they can judge him. and. As it tends to happen, he still manages to make friends, and there's a love interest that comes in. I really wanted to write a character that was a little unlikable, (laughs) which isn't always the biggest idea to go to your editor with, but I always feel that you have all these unlikable protagonists, and somehow in YA novels, everyone still loves them. Everyone sort of feels really drawn to their magnetism, and I found that in the real world... When you push people away, the end result is often that they just leave. So I wanted to write a character that was coming from that perspective, have him wrestle with what exactly it means to let people into your life and to move beyond labels when you yourself have the big label of black floating over your head. And that was more or less the origin of Norris Kaplan.
0: Okay, so Norris sounds really, really fascinating. And I love that he's set up so differently, like you mentioned, from all the other characters you're so used to in YA. So when it comes to the actual process and the writing, the craft side of things, how were you approaching this character? How were you able to, I guess, hang out with him every time that you're writing?
1: I love him so much because in my mind, when I conceived of him, I just imagined a character that didn't have to code switch. Norris is someone that can't help but be himself. And that wasn't the case for me. In high school, it's sort of you have your white friends, you have black friends, you have your parents, you have to be the perfect model immigrant for. So it's just a bunch of identities you always have to juggle, or at least I had to juggle. But in the case of Norris, he's just himself. He's opinionated. He's snarky, has a clever retort for absolutely everything. There's something confident about that. There's something really appealing about a character who's that self-assured, even though they're a high schooler. So being in his head was actually kind of fun and freeing. I could never be a person in high school. Um, But Norris was sort of my escape valve. When I talk about the book, a lot of people are just like, oh, you wrote yourself. (laughs) But to me, (laughs) Norris and I are very different. So what I tried to take away from him was just sort of like the confidence of the character and I'm weirdly protective of him, which I didn't expect. I thought it was just gonna be like, oh, he's just a protagonist. That's a little bit of an asshole that I, <laughs> I pitched him that way. And now there are people who have read the book by now and they, oh, I really enjoyed following a character that was sort of disunlikable. And I have <laughs> a parental urge to be like, well, he has like such rich inner life. You don't know anything, Goodreads. <laughs>
0: Oh my gosh, I love that. Well, I'm really excited for listeners to pick up a copy of your book and get to know Norris. Hey, storytellers, now it's just me again. Ben and I continue to discuss how he makes time to write around his day job, and he shares really heartfelt advice on preserving your own emotional and mental health throughout the writing journey. And he was generous enough to open up about facing rejection after rejection as a writer. That second half of his interview is stitched to the end of the episode. So after Natasha Nyan's interview, be sure to stick around to hear Ben's painfully relatable struggles and his advice on how to push through them. Now on to the next part of our intro. For all of our super storytellers signed up as patrons over on our Patreon page, if you're in our Snails with Mail tier or higher, you now have early access to interviews with authors Naomi Novik of *Spinning Silver* and Julie Dow of *Forest of a Thousand Lanterns* and actor Dorian Missick, who's worked in shows like *Luke Cage* and *Tell Me a Story*. Their episodes will be publicly released over the next several months, so you have super early access to these. All you have to do is head over to patreon.com slash 88 tea and look out for those posts. Now on to today's guest, we have with us the wonderful author Natasha Nyan. Natasha is known for her page-turning young adult fiction novels The Elite's the Memory Keepers, and her most recent novel, Girls of Paper and Fire, that was published in the fall of 2018 by Jimmy Patterson Little Brown in the U.S. and Hodder and Stoughton in the U.K. In her episode, we discuss Malaysian culture and how it influenced the worlds of Girls of Paper and Fire. Natasha shares a spiritual moment that sparked the inspiration for her new novel, how she explores self-healing through storytelling, and her expansive and organic world-building process. She also answers listener questions from our Patreon members and our private Facebook group members about her research and querying process, crafting strong secondary characters, and interjecting humor around serious topics. Be sure to head over to Natasha's show notes page because she was so thoughtful to share the exact query letter she wrote to land her current literary agent for Girls of Paper and Fire. To download her query letter example, head over to 88cupsoftea.com slash podcast slash Natasha dash Nyan and scroll to the bottom of the page. Now let's jump right in because you're all going to love Natasha's stories.
2: Natasha? Yin! Hi! How are you? Hi. I'm so good. Thank you. Oh, it's so funny to hear your voice because I'm so used to listening to the podcast. Oh I'm like my God, having that's such awesome. a fan girl moment. <laughs> oh, you're so awesome. Thank you for that. How are you feeling? Uh, I'm good. Thank you so much. I'm so sorry about that last time. It just like comes on and off and I can't really tell when it's going to pop up. And it was just such bad timing. Don't
0: even about that. Seriously, don't worry. When I got the text from Katie, Catherine Locke, I was like, wait, what? Like, I freaked out. I was like, wait, what do you, what do you mean? And then she's like oh oh, Natasha's gonna send you an email just look out for it so I'm like I'm like looking for the email I'm like oh my god is she okay but I'm so glad that you're doing like I felt a lot better when you said that that's something that you've come across before so you know how it's like and you kind of know how to get through it but oh my gosh you're so I badass thinking... I really was like so worried but thank you so much for letting me know I felt so bad thank but thank you. you for being so nice about it no you're so sweet I think if oh I was goodness. going through that I was like forget about everything that's happening. I would just be like, Wait, my heart. No. Like I wouldn't even have time to think about anyone else, honestly. So truly, thank you so much. And I felt so bad that you even were like worrying about the podcast when you're going through that for real. I'm just like
2: I feel bad because it's like a condition I've had from young. So I know what it is and I know what helps it. And if it gets to a certain level I have to get myself to hospital and it's always that sort of, Oh, is it quite this bad yet? Like do I feel like I'm dying enough yet? God. Uh, yeah, and it's been pretty calm over Christmas, luckily. So I'm oh kind of waiting God. on an operation. So hopefully what? once I can. Yeah, what do
0: you but mean? Another... Oh my God. <laughs> once, one thing after another. For... Wait,
2: what do you mean? <laughs> no, for my heart. <laughs> Wait, it's a surgery or are you replacing your heart? Yes, no, it's surgery. So it's basically like it will go into your heart and it gets rid of the cells that are misfiring because it's like an electrical imbalance or something is going off. It's not like an open heart surgery. Like they'll go up through the veins in your leg, and you have to be awake during it. Oh, they... <laughs> girl, no, thank you. No, no, no. Wait, are you given pain meds? You're sedated. I mean, you're awake because they electrocute different areas of your heart to see how it responds. And they can't do it if you're under, like, general. Exactly, because oh, then your heart is very calm. And I've actually been to the hospital twice in the UK, like, thinking I was going to get it done, like, properly going in as a patient and fasting the day before and, like, getting ready. And then And they told me, oh, we can't do it today because actually it's too dangerous or whatever. Like the NHS is so, I I love it to bits, but it's just so inefficient. It's like, why didn't you just decide? this before and yes. save everyone the trouble yes agreed <laughs> yeah so because it can take like up to nine hours that's the problem oh, and so i'm just under like other tests to try and find where in the heart exactly because then it will save time and it's not as long and i've got new medication which really helps so far and now i live in paris and so i'm not quite sure what's going on with my health cover but we'll see oh, <laughs> it's definitely been a stress i'm not like i don't come from a wealthy family but um my is <laughs> like you know how some parents i don't know like save up for like to pay a bit for the wedding of their child. Yeah. Yeah. like she saved up from young to like pay for my heart surgery. Oh my <laughs> she's amazing. Um, I know. So she's like, don't worry. I've got like a few thousand in, in the bank and I might not even need it if the medication keeps going. Well, working. I hope,
0: yes. I hope it kicks in and really helps like forever. <laughs> like, you don't have to go through that. I'm just like cringing at the thought of something going up my leg to go through to my, oh my God, I think I'm just going to pass. Oh, I'm like sweating know, just no, hearing
2: it, this. <laughs> the one goes up through your leg, like from your thigh, and then the other one comes oh. down from your collarbone. And it's like, oh, that's.
0: Oh, hell no oh my I am not helping this situation I am so sorry but I'm just like nah no that that medication better kick in forever oh my god Natasha you're so awesome I admire you you're so badass I would be such a chicken like, I'm gonna deal with any of this you have no idea I'm so
2: lame like you're so brave it's ridiculous oh no like honestly when you've had things from young it's just normal oh stop it's, being so like- humble oh my gosh i <laughs> uh uh-uh. If I had it since young, I'd be complaining. I'd like, look
0: at me. This is what's happening to me. Me, me, me. Oh my
2: God. So don't get excited. But like, so the heart condition is actually part of a bigger condition. So I have this like big genetic health condition, um, which is degenerative and incurable. And it's called Ellis danlos Syndrome, EDS. It's very rare. Um, it's called like an invisible illness because you can't actually see it. So basically what it is is that all the connective tissue in my body is programmed wrong in my DNA. So everything that has connective tissue which is really like everything it's like your blood vessels your bones your skin like everything you know is weak and my body is like constantly falling apart and so my body has to work harder to hold itself together and then this is one of the ways that affected me was with my heart like a valve so blood gets stuck going through it and a whole other range of conditions so yeah I, I really would love to be more what? vocal about it because really I am disabled but um you can't really see and everyone always thinks I'm really healthy and like, cause I don't like to talk. I like to talk about it, but like, I don't talk about it on a daily basis. It's definitely something I'd like to explore a bit more in the future, maybe through writing as well. Well, you know, girl, like-
0: you know, you got this platform too, <laughs> if you want to talk about it. This is something that's
2: so fascinating to me. And I feel like is such an important Conversation. Yeah, then. it affects you know my life. It it affects why I became a writer and how I write as well. You know, just oh my god, I life wait as to a writer, and a career no Yeah, honestly, Yin, I'm such an open book, and oh, like I'm it's so excited. easy to talk to you already that I'm very happy to talk about anything. And oh my god, yeah.
0: well, okay, girl, I knew you grew up in UK, but then yeah. you moved to France, so you're like actually picking up French on your own and learning it as much as you can? Like, are you taking classes?
2: Yeah, Yeah, so I think I got here like a year and a half ago and I took one month of like morning classes, which was really, really good actually. And I can see how much better it is to have classes because at the moment I've mainly learned it just from talking and listening. And the problem is as well with French is that it's not written the way it sounds. Like, I don't know if you know anything about the language. Not,
0: I mean, I've been to France and I've heard it, but it's not something that I understand at all when it comes to
2: breaking mm -hmm. down to learn. Yes. So basically like they really like to contract words together. So je suis is like I am and they'll say chui. Chui. Yes, like je suis mixed together, chui. Oh, interesting. And so when you hear this, you don't know whether is that another word, you know, like I would look at like written French and I was like what is this it looks so different (laughs) and and also like I'm in Paris and my friends will just use slang all the time oh god that's really difficult to pick up on I know it's it's so hard so I did this course and it was so good but the stupid thing about this course was that it was like a rolling course so you basically just arrive when you arrive and you will learn what teaching you and people have been there for like one year um, months at least and I came and they were learning conditional tense which is like what if, you know, the what if tense. And okay. in order to conjugate it which is like in order to kind of change all the verbs to fit that tense you have to know future tense oh my god (laughs) and so I'd arrived and they were like doing this other tense I was like wait but what like how do we and they're like oh we're future I'm like yeah but what Like, how do we with that and so it was so weird I learned like these two bizarre tenses like conditional and subjunctive which is even weirder then I had to kind of at the same time try and learn everything that I'd missed but it was really good and I definitely want to do a proper course because it's so weird not being able to like express yourself right The
0: way that you really Um, want
2: to. Yeah. And like to get your personality across, like that's what I find one of the hardest things that you're. Yes. I never even thought of that. Is your boyfriend, does he speak only French or does he speak? No, no. He's fluent in English and French. Okay. So you're able
0: to at least express yourself with him. At least the person you're most into. Okay.
2: Thank gosh. Okay. I was like, no, 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 no. Like we talk for hours and hours. Like, oh, thank God. Okay, we yeah. Met. Like, we, yeah, we talk for hours and um, people are always, yeah, saying like, no, you guys have to speak in French all the time. I'm like, dude, how are we meant to talk about like politics? Exactly. or you know, like really personal stuff yes. I- if I use French because it's going to take forever for me yes. to try because I'm trying to figure out how to make a sentence. And, and let's
0: <laughs> talk about all the miscommunication that would happen that would probably bring up <laughs> arguments. It's like, wait, you don't seem like you care about what I'm telling you right now. <laughs> I, like, <laughs> this is some personal shit that really hurt me. But he's just like, uh-huh, yes <laughs> it's like, wait, do you not? You know what I mean? So really, it gives your significant other, for example, the chance to really show how he or she would feel in expressing back and reacting towards what you're sharing. So yeah. I think I completely agree with when it comes to really intimate things and with a significant other, especially speak in the language that you're both most confident in, because it gives each other the chance to truly show up at your very best. I mean, this happens all the time when I'm talking to my girlfriend's mom and I'm trying to learn as much Chinese as possible possible and it's getting Which better.
2: Which dialect does she, does she speak? So she
0: speaks Mandarin but I'm sure you're familiar with Hokkien right? Oh yes Hokkien. Yeah yes. my mom can
2: speak Hokkien. Yes exactly
0: so I grew up with my whole mom's side of the family speaking Hokkien Ooh. and my dad's side speaking Taiwanese and oh. also Mandarin. My mom and dad when they met in New York my mom did not speak a lick of Mandarin because you know in Malaysia you don't need to get around with Mandarin at
2: all. No you speak a bit of Bahasa. Yes. A bit exactly. of Malay and then I and, like my mom actually is Teochew, so she speaks Teochew Mandarin and Cantonese and Hokkien and you know everything yes but, um, exactly
0: I'm, I'm, like, yeah. I'm sure she but ma- no Mandarin is not everything.
2: like a thing there and like also I don't know about you but like my Mandarin is horrible because it's Malaysian Mandarin it's oh
0: not. oh trust I I understand that because my yeah. mom had that same Mandarin so she couldn't understand what the hell my dad oh. and his side of the family oh. were saying the only way they could communicate was Hokkien and Taiwanese because it was similar have you heard Taiwanese before no it's never. so similar to, to Hokkien let me tell you you'll get around Taiwan if you can speak They'll be impressed. Oh no, I can't, but I'll bring my mom. (laughs) (laughs) You're like, nah, girl, don't be throwing me to the wolves. (laughs) (laughs) If you drag your mom with you, you'll get around perfectly fine with your Hokkien. But Mandarin, again, is like still like the main language in Taiwan, shockingly. But there are still older people who can speak Taiwanese. So it's kind of like badass, they say, if you can speak Taiwanese. Or if your mom can speak Hokkien in Taiwan, I think she'll get like more respect because it's almost like a dying language. I don't want to really say dying language, but it's kind of like that because Mm. the younger generation is mostly speaking Mandarin. And are you learning Taiwanese? It's funny because I used to get picked on a lot in New York growing up in the schooling systems because when I grew up, my Taiwanese grandma Mm -hmm. raised me. So she raised me speaking Taiwanese and a little bit of Mandarin. So my first language was not English. It was Taiwanese and Mandarin a little bit. So I was thrown into ESL English as a a second language in kindergarten. But then I remember being picked on so much because of the way I spoke English at the time that I... Oh
2: my God, I'm so sorry. Oh no, it sucked
0: at the time but it's totally cool now. But I was just like, damn, I don't want to be associated with it because I don't want to get picked on. Mm. So then I ended up almost like shutting down a side of my brain that didn't allow myself to learn any more Chinese. Because, you know, if you have a will, you have a way. If you want to learn, you'll learn. If you don't, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. So I was refusing to absorb any more of any of the Chinese language. And I just only absorbed English to the point where I completely forgot how to speak Chinese, Mandarin or Taiwanese specifically. Wow. Then when I was like 20, I was like, you know what? F this. I'm proud of who I am. Like, I should be proud that I could speak more than one language. And I started to pick it up really quick. I took one semester in college and then I just really started pushing myself to learn. And I would remember how my dad would say things in Taiwanese. I would just remember how his voice would sound and I would just mimic it. And I oh, started I to that. be able to open up that side of the brain that I'm able to. It absorb. was that. I mean, it was that. It was your... there all along, which is yeah. insane. I'm just like, what the hell? Where did that come from? But I could not pick up a lick of any Malay. Let me tell you mom oh. and aunts always spoke Malay to each other and they didn't want to teach me because that was the only language where they could say something about me in <laughs> private I was like that's some bullshit that's messed it up so they're just like it's really pissing me off today I you're like right exactly love you so much it's really it's like this kid if I could just adopt her ass I could just throw away in the orphan for sure I would give my mom shit now and I'm like you could have taught me Malay Bahasa and all that stuff and she's like well who asked you to not pick it up up on your
2: own. I'm like, whoa, rude. Amazing. My mom is always like telling me, like, Tash, can you remember this? Do you remember this person? I'm like, no. no. And like, she's like, Oh my god, what is wrong with you? And my dad is like, Lee Li Chu, she was like two years old, or she was a baby. Oh my god, that's <laughs> my mom is like
0: there's something wrong with you. Wait, no joke, that's my mom. She's like, Don't you remember this? Oh Don't you remember god. that? Like, mom, was I not two years old? She's like, Yeah, and I'm like, How am I gonna remember at two years old? You
2: need to be succeeding the minute you come out of the room. You no, need joke. you succeed.
0: need to succeed when you're That's how it is.
2: Where where are you from in Malaysia? Where's your mom from? My mom is... Okay, so
0: she's born in Tringanu. It's so beautiful. I've been there. You've been? Oh my God. Wait, where's your mom from? So
2: my mom is from um, Kuala Lumpur, from KL.
0: (gasps) So you're like from the city.
2: I'm from the city. Yeah. amazing. I lived in KL when I was young. So basically, as soon as I was born, my mom brought me over from England to Malaysia. I think I was like six months. She brought me over and I stayed there for like six years. My dad was working in the UK and we would fly back. Back and forth. I eventually moved back to the UK, but was still going to Malaysia like three times a year for like all of my holidays. So I really feel like I grew up between the two. Oh my God, that's incredible. I But I, I have lost all of my language. Wait, so you this, were able
0: to speak a bit when you were a kid? This,
2: yeah, th- that's the problem though, because I, I grew up speaking Malayan, speaking Mandarin with my mom and like with my family and uh, with my grandfather. It was like one of my first languages along with English. And then when I moved back to England, I kind of had the same thing like you. So i moved back and my mom was like, wow, you were like a little malay rude boy you were like la la this everything like why yeah la la like she was like who is this girl she kind of panicked as well and tried to like really like english me up and, and then i went to secondary school and i was nicknamed alien because i'm half what? chinese you know. and at the time i didn't realize like how insulting this was but hell? i was i was just 11 you know and so growing up i kind of also did what you did and kind of tried to shed a little bit in terms of the language and i also just like it was so much effort going to chinese school every sunday my God, it was four hours drive. So eventually I stopped. And then I still speak a bit, though, with my mum. Like we speak like typical Malaysians. You will mix English, Malay and, you know, different dialects all together. Now that I've moved to France and I've been learning French, I'm like losing all of my language. And it's so weird. Like some tourists came to me in the street and they were asking me in Chinese, like, oh, we want to go here. Like, where is it? And I could understand them. And I tried to reply to them in Chinese. And all I was getting was French.
0: And you're probably (laughs) like, wait, why is my brain not answering in Chinese? (laughs) And
2: you're like trying to reach and grasp the words. And I was grasping them and like I could just bring out French. And it was so weird. But when I went back for Christmas just now, I was chatting with my mom as we do. And like we're mixing one our language. And then I I slept. And in my dream, I spoke English, Chinese and French. I woke up I was like, oh, it's there. (laughs) (laughs) That is so cool. Okay, so how was your holidays? It was so fun. Like Christmas Day, Fab and I were playing them some sort of like more modern music. And her mom was loving it. And she was like dancing. Around the room, it was really, really funny to see my mom dancing to thrift shop and. <laughs> oh my!
0: Are oh we? Wait, Ma- wait, Macklemore. Oh yeah, Macklemore. Oh my- um, my- <laughs> wait.
2: <laughs> and like Kendrick Lamar, it was so. good. I think your
0: mom and my mom could be really good friends. My mom be- loves Macklemore. Yeah. Oh my! She God. loves his song especially the one about equal rights oh, and the love. same love yes she's like who's that young man who's that young man <laughs> singing about the uh, the gay people I love that song I love that song I'm like oh my god mom you sound so oh, politically that's incorrect right now but I love you exactly
2: like my mom she's- <laughs> every time she's talking to me she's like oh you know like auntie whatever son you know like oh he's gay i'm like oh (laughs) my yo
0: for real i think it's a malaysian thing because my mom she'll be like wait your friend's brother is a gay i know a gay too you know so hard to find each other let's put them together i'm like oh my god mom you don't understand how ignorant you sound but thank you for trying but nah like again (laughs) it's well-meaning but i also do believe that with malaysian culture they're taught to be more brash they're straightforward they just tell you what they want i know it's not exactly the (laughs) most polite so i realize it's a huge culture clash literally just tell tell it like they'll tell you to your face and you think new yorkers will tell you to your face nah you haven't met malaysian
2: people (laughs) you don't even like you can meet a malaysian auntie in like one minute and she'll be like what is wrong with your face like oh like why are you like what i'm loving this i'm i'm
0: like really so happy right now that we can actually relate and talk a lot about our upbringings and it feels really
2: nice it's it's relevant like this is why i wrote girls and you know it's to celebrate our culture. Well, thank so. you. I love that you circled it back. I appreciate it. <laughs> yes. Remember whiting. <laughs> Oh my gosh. Okay,
0: so Natasha, for real though, I do really want listeners to hear more about your beautiful book. And you write beautifully. Your world is gorgeous. I got sucked in. Like I oh. thought I was going to get like two chapters in. Nah, girl, you sucked me into book past <laughs> chapter eight. No joke, Natasha. I was so freaking proud that you were able to weave in the Malaysian culture. Like oh. I saw it. And there was a goddess that you said. It reminded me of Guan Yin, a goddess of compassion. And the story is that she gave her eyes to her father, who was a king, he was like a terrible king. She was still always so compassionate and kind, and she literally dug out her own eyes wow. to give to her father. This is just like whoever up there, the universe is like a also lovely speaking through you yeah. too. That's uh, such a beautiful coincidence. I think that also just shows how truly enriched the culture is, and it just seeped in you too. Just everybody listening, Malaysia is just filled with all different sorts of cultures. All yes, t- it's a it it's a, a true cool. melting pot. They really accept all different cultures everywhere. And it, it
2: melds so beautifully. Exactly. And that's exactly what I wanted to do. Like, I've never really seen a fantasy world anyway that to me felt like a sort of Malaysian-Asian world. Because I feel like a lot of the times when we say Asian fantasy, we mean Japanese or Chinese and yeah, very much East Asia. Um, But for me, no, I'm very much a South Asian girl and like Malaysia is completely different to, like, I don't know anything about China, yeah, really. Mm -hmm. I've never been. And so my culture experience, I mean, you grow up, I go to the temple and Mm -hmm. it's like Zen Buddhism and then you pass all the mosques on your way. You know, like I see everyone going to the mosque down my street and then you have Indian food at a mamak restaurant, at a hawker store. You learn all these different pieces of language because everyone shares what they eat and you have Indian friends and expat friends. It's just such a mix. And especially me being half Chinese and then also living in England. So I also have this Mm diaspora element. Yeah, I wanted to write what felt so authentically my own experience. And it's just been such a pleasure to be able to do that. And I've had letters from Malaysian readers telling me like, oh, my God, this is the first time. I've seen mm-hmm. my culture and they were like, oh, and when you were talking about this dish, like it was Nasi lemak, right? Or like yes. when you talked about this thing, it was jamun. I'm like, yes, yes, yes. And it's so nice that there's like little sort of Easter eggs for us. Yes, you know?
0: exactly. And I'm giving my verbal stamp of approval of authenticity <laughs> here. And truly for someone who is very proud that my family is also Malaysian, like this is something <laughs> I resonated with as well. And like you said, growing up, we see all these books, we see people that look like us, but it's not something that we really resonate with. This is a yeah. world where I grew up and I see it here. I see even from the clothing that you were describing. I'm yes, like, oh yeah, my all that God, clothing, the sarong like, and everything. Yeah, yes, Like girl. the kabaya,
2: the sarong, yes. like that's what I grew up.
0: Yes. You know, wearing or seeing and and let's yeah. talk about the geography too like you were also amazing at painting the geography about how different each area is with the ocean the lands and everything there's a lush forest I was so really truly impressed I was just like damn this is oh. something that makes me proud to see in words and say like hey if you ever want a taste of Malaysia check out Girls of Paper and Fire you know oh,
2: and, that's so lovely and I never
0: even met you and I felt so proud you know I was oh. like so happy finally we have something out there that truly resembles what our world is like Oh, I just always think about how colorful Malaysia is truly yes, because we exactly. really love art too Like art is honestly infused everywhere we go through, through, yes, the, food, like all the, batik, through the Yes, the so. clothing through the hand wood carving art. yes oh. exactly so much hand yeah. wood carving and even now they have a lot of paintings over wood mm-hmm. I just cannot compliment you enough for this beautiful masterpiece so I'm excited to continue <laughs> reading this but I just had to to let you know and also say this out loud for the listeners to hear too. And I truly am very proud and I'm really picky when it comes to that. And it really makes me feel seen too, as
2: uh, part Malaysian, you know? And like, that's so touching. Every time someone says that to me, like they felt seen. I mean, what more could you gift a reader? And it's not something that I feel like I did, but like, I just put out something there that I felt we needed. And it's so lovely that but you did it
0: you did it in a way that we were able to understand you know like I'm sure a lot of people try and it's kind of hard to weave in all the different parts of Malaysia that's so difficult to put into one book and you're able to do that pretty darn well and so it is you you did create this and you did do it wonderfully like I'm so excited for people to see this because people will have no idea like my dad he came to Mm -hmm. Malaysia and he was shocked we sat in this taxi cab and so my dad was trying to speak English and his English was really not so good the driver was so sweet he's saw my dad, he immediately knew and he spoke Hokkien, Taiwanese. So my dad could understand. Oh, I it.
2: love that. Yes.
0: And my dad was blown away. He was like, wait, what? Like, wait, <gasps> where am I? Like, he was shocked. He was just like, oh, this is Malaysia. Oh, my God. I'm so glad. And I can't I'm even so... imagine your dad. My dad so... is like the biggest Guaylo. Do, do you know Guaylo? Oh, guilo? my God. so
2: yes. <laughs> <laughs> So cute, can you can you explain that to the listeners? guaylo is um is white ghost. <laughs> yeah. Which dialect is it again? I thought it was Hokkien. To I me, Hokkien, yes. But it it's, might be Chochu, I mean. like, like, I sometimes just... I think my family does speak you but then for me I, I thought it was Hokkien. But... It might be Hokkien. My mom t- i just you know, I picked up because she says it all the time. She's like, Oh, it's Guilo. <laughs> So cute. <laughs> <laughs> he's just like so white and like sweating and he's eating like laksa, you know, like in like a hawker center and there's like he's one so fat cute. and like all of like my aunties like shouting, like, pass me this, I want you to do like, Oh it's my so God, that's funny.
0: so fun. And he, your dad
2: loves it, doesn't he? Yeah, he does. I think it's sometimes it's a bit much. I mean, I understand like, <laughs> that so we always have such a great time. <laughs> oh my
0: God, I love that. Okay, so now I'm going to rope in more. So Girls of Paper and Fire, what was was the first spark of inspiration. I know you mentioned your yoga teacher as well. So how did all of this tie in?
2: So with girls, I really feel like it's something that's been building all along. It really took me until my 20s to really embrace who I am and what is particular about me. And like we were saying about the culture, like I'd woven sort of multicultural themes into my previous two books because I have two books published in the UK first, but I hadn't written this sort of big Asian fantasy world. Fantasy has always been my jam. It's my favorite thing to write. And so I think the start of the concept of the story was just me really starting to really embrace myself. And that meant embracing myself and my culture and also embracing my sexuality. And I sort of had all these ideas flowing around for the world. And then I was in a yoga class, actually not teaching, but taking the class. And we were in Shavasana, that pose at the end, where you just lie down. And the sort of the concept came to me of these two concubines of a demon king falling in love. I was so drawn to this idea. And then all of the imagery of my culture and my experiences and my history and like even like Lay, her parents work in a herb shop and that's what my grandparents did. They owned this oh. sort of dried goods herb shop in this very busy part of, you know, old Malay town with like the five story way, you know, like the little walkways that they have to shade you from the sun. And I remember so much like going there and smelling the whole like assault of smells and you know like sun baked <laughs> dried fish and all that sort of yes, thing. Yes delicious. And I think it really was just the right time to put everything that I love the most into a book. And I'm just so honored and happy that it got published.
0: First of all, huge belated congratulations on that, too, since we're on the topic about it getting published. But also when you mentioned sexuality, I mean, I don't want to give it away, but like you were able to weave in how it slowly starts. I mean, I think there's a lot of fantasizing for a lot of people. They fetishize like what women and women like what that relationship is like Mm -hmm. and how that forms. But I loved how you beautifully weaved in how subtle it started And how you could notice it With just like a start of a glance Like oh okay Like I'm noticing yeah. something A <laughs> uh, little something something You know what I mean Like yeah, looking yeah. at that girl And that's how it felt for me It felt re- very real for me And I think this is something We should also discuss mm-hmm. I know that you are With a boyfriend right now And the thing mm-hmm. is When I discuss with my family Like there were certain family members They're like wait I'm confused I thought you are saying Now you're a lesbian But now you're saying That you like guys too I'm confused Oh my god yes And it yes, pisses yes, me uh, off Because yes. I'm like wait hold up I never ever said lesbian. I said I have feelings for this woman and we're probably going to end up in a relationship and I'm just opening it up to you so that you can be a part of this journey with me. Mm -hmm. I never, ever staked the claim of being a full on lesbian title. Like I don't Mm -hmm, even think mm -hmm. there needs to be a title. Yes, I agree.
2: So for me, I prefer using the term queer because I just feel like it's Mm. more flexible and it's less specific. And how do I know? I don't I don't know what exactly I am still discovering new things about myself all the time and some days maybe I feel like 100% gay and then other days I feel more like 5% and like you know it varies so as well like when I was young I didn't really see in in books which were what I would always go to when I was struggling with things I was very like an introverted child and books were my safe place and I didn't see female female relationships Mm -hmm. in books it was a different culture back then as well so people weren't as open in school and so when I was looking at girls and finding them beautiful or finding myself attracted to them I didn't understand what that was it was attraction Mm -hmm. and yeah it really took me a long time to realize like oh no that's what it is like I'm 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 not like straight that
0: is exactly my same like very similar route where I would always find girls more attractive than guys I was way more picky about guys the girls I'm just like oh they're so beautiful. Although I would have to say like I would crack jokes. I don't even think they were probably appropriate for now but back then I would say like things like oh gosh you're stunning. Oh my god if I was a lesbian I would totally want to date you and I'm like damn I think I really meant it too. (laughs) Oh shit like this was not even a joke. You know at first I thought like oh I noticed like I'm one of those girls who are definitely a girl's girl. Like I'm very protective of my girls like friends Mm -hmm. family members all women and I'm always like more a little bit aggressive against guys I'm very competitive with guys but mm-hmm. not girls like girls I have an absolute soft spot for like I will protect you to no end but for guys I'm like dude I'll F you up like <laughs> even though I'm like tiny as hell and could like flick me all the way wherever and I have had friends who are like wait wow you're like really like on the girls side like you're always very fair to the girls you're never competitive or jealous I'm like no I think the girls are stunning and then they're like yeah I noticed that you really admire the (laughs) women's beauty but why is it like you're always talking shit about every dude and saying like they're butt ugly or something I'm like I don't know and then so I had no idea like and like you were mentioning culture back then just didn't really allow that, especially like I noticed in my school, forget about it. I, I remember there were rumors about a girl kissing a girl in the bathroom. And I was guilty being one of those that were like, what? What do you mean? Oh, yeah. like, you know, and I feel so it was awful done. now. We're
2: done for like the boys benefit. You know, yes. it was like, oh, two girls made out yes. or two girls went down on a guy. And it was yes. like, you know, because it's sexy. It's not because they actually wanted to or exactly. they were.
0: And the thing is, you know, going back to the whole labeling I feel most comfortable and how I try to explain it to people, family members and whoever, I just say, you know what? The word bisexual is really made up for you guys so that you feel comfortable. You know, I don't I don't really even connect with the word bisexual. It really I guess it's more pansexual like I'm still discovering as well and I'm still learning and I don't want to put any labels because I don't want to claim something now and then go back on it later for me I'm just like you know what listen I am who I am I'm attracted to energies and it doesn't mean that like oh I'm with a woman now it doesn't mean I'm not attracted to men I'm still attracted to men and if I were you know before my current girlfriend I was with a dude doesn't mm-hmm. mean I wasn't attracted to girls because I definitely was like, I mean, yes, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, now I realize I was I was like, oh, damn. So th- those were those feelings. Now I can understand. And, yes. you know, and that's the thing, if anything, I'd rather label feelings as in, OK, I recognize that means that I find that person attractive, you know, but overall, as in labeling myself, I don't like that. I don't like that at all. And I would rather it just be saying I'm attracted to whoever I'm attracted to, energies, mm-hmm. whoever. And I think truly like all these different words, all these categories were made so that those who don't understand could feel more comfortable. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And it's just such a fascinating conversation that we can always like go on and on about, which you come to America, you let me know. We'll grab. (laughs) All right. But like the thing is, it's just I think it's important for people to understand, too. There is no like when you especially when you read your book, like the way you were able to so delicately describe and so accurately to the attraction Like you can Mm -hmm. have that. With a guy or girl or whoever, you know, someone who's a they and those are the same feelings. And the thing is, I think the issue is like whatever we do read usually it's fetishized and it's usually yeah. written by men and it's like oh they start like getting all like pervy about it where Ugh, the way yeah. you were able to describe the attraction was truly how I was attracted to my girlfriend like I noticed her at first I'm like oh mm-hmm. and then next I'm like and I didn't really think much about it then slowly it starts to like build up and I was like oh my <laughs> god that was so beautiful the way you were able to describe that it was oh, so so, so good I do feel like not having any examples truly out there as much for let's say same sex attraction how were you able to dig deep
2: into that were you able to pull from your own experience it was definitely a very personal thing and the the nice thing about girls or the nice thing and also like there are the many nice things thing. <laughs> <laughs> no but like about the journey it was like it was amazing and it was also awful because it took us like four, I think it's like maybe five years now since I first wrote the book so the publication process wait the five years public- for
0: girls of paper and fire
2: yeah, like what? to get to get published because I actually wrote it in four months and then it took what? us like four years. Yeah. I'll, you I'll are tell you jo- all about that. Oh, girl,
0: you're <laughs> going to open up about this. Oh,
2: yes. I will definitely say it, talk all about it. I'm happy to. But um, basically, because it took so long, I've, I'm a different person now, That's you know, true. to who I was at the beginning or well, not different. But like I've evolved and that actually benefited the story in a way because I could have more hindsight on myself when I was writing girls and on the characters. And I think maybe getting like little nuances that that sort of distance really helps. Yeah, I just I really dug deep. And I when I first write a book, when I do the draft, I'm not very I don't plan at all. I'm a total panster. And oh. so I don't know, really what the book is about. I just know I have this urge, I need to write this thing and I have this world I love, these characters I'm interested in and this sort of concept and I just keep writing and then once it's done, that's when I see like, oh, that's all the stuff I was trying to say with this book and this book is just, I mean, it's so much of what I've been through and what's important to me and being able to have time after I'd written it, I could really see that and then start to tease out more elements of myself and really confront Myself, and it, it it didn't change too much in the editing, but there was definitely lots of details, um, and especially emotional details that I was able to really pay attention to. So I was also going through a breakup at the time. I was with my first boyfriend from when I was 14, so we were together for 11 years. <gasps> Wait, what? Yes. <Yeah. laughs> yeah Callum um, and he's my best friend like he's still my best friend now oh my god really <laughs> and, um, yeah and so you know we've been together that long and I'd I wrote girls while we were together I think but it was definitely coming to the end and I was definitely sensing changes in me or at least yeah. awareness and then I was single for a year and during that time I had some experiences and I you know I got to discover <laughs> and explore my sexuality more yes and, girl get it <laughs> and it was So good. And I think everything that I went through in that year, I mean, it was so short, but you know, after you've been with someone for 11 years, you kind of go a bit crazy. and um, (laughs) A lot of different things happen, some good, some bad. But like, I really felt like that really helped as well. Because then when I came to edit, Girls, I had more first-hand experience. Let's say, um, yes, yes, <laughs> literally. To, yeah, yes, of
0: course. Yeah, so it was a, an interesting process. Okay, so you guys are are best friends right now. Did you need space between then, like the breakup, to then refine yourselves
2: together as best friends? Or- it was very sad when we broke up because. We, there was just still so much love there. I think it was the sort of realization that we had grown apart. Out- outgrew each other, maybe. Yeah, we have so much love for each other, and he's still the best person I know. And the p- first person I want to call with like any news, and you know, I know he will like cry. literally. <laughs> <Aww>. <laughs> but he will fight to the ends of the earth for me, like you know. And it was really tough. And we actually we just moved in together when we broke up, so we just bought <gasps> a. Get- we yeah. bought it was like the worst you bought,
0: not even <laughs> we rented bought
2: so yeah so what i did not really f- it was it was i mean callum had a good job and like so we got this flat together and we just moved it in and then he just turned around to me one day and was like, I'm not in love with you anymore. And it came out of the blue. But like I said, I think if I look back now, I can see that it was something that had been around, but it, it came to a head. And because we just bought a flat, I couldn't move out. So we lived together for a year. So was like an we-
0: awkward roommate situation.
2: Yeah, it was really. And luckily, like our jobs were completely different timings. So Callum was out and I was working in the day. Were and you guys was- allowed
0: to date? It- Did you agree on dating at that time when like, yes. other people... We did. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So that will get messy too.
2: Oh, it did. And I I can't, you know, it's way too personal to go into But it definitely got very messy. (laughs) And there was some awful, like, oh, just, yeah, really awful incidents. Okay, girl, we're
0: going to have some tea next time. Okay, (laughs) we're going to get into details about this (laughs) one.
2: For sure. But the thing is, like, even through all of that, no matter how mad we got at each other, and if something awful had happened to me, I could still come to Callum and be like, Callum, this happened. And he would be there for me. Whatever, you know, we'd done to each other or said or. And then I moved out on Christmas Eve. I went home and I just like lay in my parent like my home back in my parents' house and they because they were like renovating and they said so I didn't have my room anymore which is why I couldn't go back and then now they just kind of made this makeshift bed for me and I was like lying on it crying like oh my god, god my life is over I and, just want to give you a hug <laughs> oh my god <laughs>
0: to have to do all of that move and make that final closing of a chapter on such a
2: special momentous day is heartbreaking like I yeah, cannot it, uh, well, it was really tough and we. We like both cried when I was leaving and it was just, Shit. it It was literally like felt like losing your best friend because that that's what it was. But I'm so happy that we managed to keep that, you know, and retain that love and that friendship. So it's a crazy r- story and no one kind of like gets it when I tell them, but he is still my, my very best I, friend. Listen,
0: I get it because I know some friends who are still best friends with their exes. Like I personally haven't had that experience, but I'm like thinking if not that i want to put negative energy out there but again like this also teaches me like your story teaches me there's mm-hmm. there's never anything that's permanent you know you sh- we should mm-hmm. really live to our fullest but also with a little bit of detachment in a weird way i i know it sounds a little like sad but that's what buddhism teaches No
2: her. i totally get you that know i what completely I mean, agree right? yeah you, give your you can all, never but you never know what's going to happen never
0: know you really yeah. never know truly yeah. i mean this is just a story that proves it and for me i'm like i think my girlfriend probably would be the only person if we were to ever break up in the future right. I think she'd be the only person I could see being my still my best friend even afterwards yeah. you know truly like someone I can always I know will always have my back and I'll always have hers no matter what because we've just built that strong foundation yeah. over the years and it's just she's the only person I could imagine that so I can understand where it, you're coming yeah, from. It, yeah it
2: becomes like like family, family you yes know? yes and yes. I, I always say like Callum's like my brother and I, I know, know that sounds so weird no but no don't it doesn't siblings, I understand. it's just this deep love for someone that you can't shake. And it's like, no, I will literally fight off like a pack of wild wolves, you know, they're coming towards him just because something ended doesn't take away from how special and incredible that thing was Mm -hmm. and how much that shaped you and will continue to shape you. And so I try and take that into everything that I do now, that sense of like, just because something ends, it doesn't mean it's not, I don't know, like it wasn't worth it. Yes, you know or it wasn't so special and important. Girl, you are so inspiring. Are you are you <laughs> Buddhist by any chance? No, I you... Yeah, that was the one religion I've always been drawn to. No, my so my mum is not religious at all, um but my grandparents were Buddhists and we have like a a shrine in yes. my yeah, Yes, have in an my altar. altar. Yeah, we have an altar, like yep, the ancestral altar. Yes. And like you go to the temple and you have, you know, the pictures of your parents and you like chat to them and whatever and yes. like the joysticks sticks.
0: So you were raised with a Tao Buddhist upbringing, basically. So similar to mine. But you and I are still kind of searching it for ourselves. Then.
2: Oh, yeah. I'm not religious. Like, I feel like I'm spiritual, if that makes sense. But sometimes that does sound so, I don't know. It, no. it just sounds so wishy-washy. But like, I just feel like I don't know. I don't understand anything about the world. And so how can I say what is happening or what is not happening or right. you know and I, and I really am very much like you like I'm very attracted to people's energies and I really sense energies and yeah. you can sense the energy of a place and of people and so I try and be very open-minded with that but I yeah in terms of like anything concrete I'm still searching.
0: I may be a little bit more religious I do pray to Buddha and Guanyin, Yin uh, goddess of mercy I do feel like a lot of times too like I'm trying to still search for myself a deep connection because I used to have a connection but it was really from the loyalty to family right and mm-hmm, yeah. I think now I also say I'm spiritual because I do believe there's something higher than us and I just cannot really figure out like I can't pinpoint where exactly um, yes. that I feel that 1000% connection with but I feel very um, close to Buddhism now that I'm older but I am mm-hmm. searching for myself like something that I feel like it's important to really keep close to your own heart that you make your own decision because I don't think it's right when people try to push their religion on each other so for me I'm like I kind of had to break away from that whole family buddhist upbringing to really be like okay if I claim that I'm a buddhist I'd really rather find it for myself but for now yeah. I'm gonna kind of call it I'm spiritual like I I very much believe that there's something larger than us because it's ridiculous mm-hmm, if we mm-hmm. think that it's just us I mean mm-hmm. that's my my opinion but obviously mm-hmm. there's others who disagree and that's fine too. But I really think there's something in being very... Um humble and knowing that we're just here part of something bigger. Okay, so this also reminds me, I noticed that you were able to like weave in some superstitions. Like I feel like I grew up hearing about as well and just like cultural myths into your stories, which is amazing. And I (laughs) love that. I know you mentioned you're not a plotter at all and you're a pantser. So is this something that just came up to you as you're writing the scene? Or would you have written maybe
2: some notes on sticky notes? Yeah, definitely. Like I'm so into world building. And so you (laughs) execute very well. And say. <laughs> so yeah, before I ever start writing something, I really love to spend like a few months like just wallowing in the world. Like it's like swimming, you know, in your world. And it feels like this ocean and it's dark and I can't really see everything, but I'm like wishing washing around through it and like things, different things are coming to me and different ideas. And it was a very organic process. And like I said, I was so lucky to be able to draw from my my heritage and my memories um, to build the world. Um, but I definitely did research and I didn't want to disrespect anyone Yes, with this. Totally and I feel like, yes. especially when you get into religion and, you know, religion is very important for a lot of Malaysians yeah, and it's extremely also, personal. Yes. Yes. And it can be quite a controversial topic. And yes. I be, not being a religious person, but being spiritual, but I didn't want to, you know, replicate anything. There's like lots of little cultural things that are very definitely things that like Malaysians or Chinese will recognize, like mentions of like hungry ghost Month or like, you know, everyone being so, you know, enamored with the number eight, which is like really yes. and just little elements like that. And with the colors, you know, silver and white being mm-hmm. a morning color. Um, so those I felt like that's something I'd grown up knowing. So I could put that in. But then when it came to very specific religious things, like, like you were saying earlier about the goddesses or gods, I didn't want to have anything that was real because I didn't feel like it was my place. Right. Oh, I love that. I love that you mentioned that. Yeah. So the, the religion and the spirituality in the world is made up, but I hope it feels familiar, if that makes yes, sense. It it's, feels you know, so like, familiar. Yeah. And like having the different gods, And like, that's something that's, you know, familiar to me and going to the shrine and we have elements that would give a feeling, but they weren't taking from because that almost to me felt a bit like appropriation because like, I don't know Mm. that much about these religions. And so who am I to be using them? That is so
0: respectful of you. I love that you mentioned that because I think this is something, well, not I think, I've, I've read some listeners asking like, is this something that's my place where it's something that they have nothing to do with. There's no ties. And look at how respectful you're being when you even grew up basically, Mm. in Malaysia as well, and yet you still feel like it's not your place and you want to be as respectful as possible. I'm really glad that you brought this up. It is important to at least bring up as awareness to those who Mm -hmm. are considering writing about something that they truly have no ties with, like literally have no ties with at all. You you actually have ties with Malaysia, and Mm -hmm. yet you're still being so respectful. And I'm just like blown away by that. And I I honor that. I think that's incredible.
2: And what a great influence the role model you are. I think you have to think about like, why are you writing this story? What is important to you? And more so than that, like, I really believe that the best stories are the ones that we tell from the heart. Like with girls, it does explore sexual abuse and it it's not used as a plot device. It very much is like a narrative and an, and an sort of exploration of it and a condemnation of it. And that's something that I've been through multiple times in my life. And it's something that I wouldn't write about that if that wasn't something I'd personally gone through because I want anyone who's coming to my book and seeing a difficult subject like that, I want them to know that that was written from someone else who understands and it's, Mm. you know, a little bit like a hand going out to take theirs and being like, I understand and I have been there and obviously our experiences are very different, but there is some sort of shared trauma. Every time I write a story, I always, even though I said I don't plan, like I, the core of this the story and as I'm writing, you know, like why am I including These things and with girls, I didn't even realize I was writing a story about sexual abuse. But when I got to the end of it and I looked back, I was like, of course. And like it was so clear, obviously, why I'd written about it as well because I haven't. That's something that's been so difficult for me to talk about or to come to grips with, and I'm still, you know, understanding all those things that have happened to me and kind of being able to put words in it. Is this
0: your first time that
2: you've talked about it through your work of Girls of Paper and Fire? So I wrote two books before Girls. Like the first book I got published was the first one I wrote. That had a character who'd experienced sexual assault. And we actually changed that, I think, in the final draft because it was just like a brief mention. So it wasn't really like gone over. And then in book two, I had this, you know, this girl's mum, and she also... Had gone through that, and her daughter was facing something a little bit similar in one of the scenes, and it was kind of like this link between them. And then I came to write Girls, and how, you know, like I don't plan right. my books, but looking back, it's like, wow, there are definitely very clear threads. And like I was saying before, it, Girls is the book that, you know, it took me so long to write because I was still coming to terms with myself and to be comfortable with myself. And these are not comfortable things to talk no, about or no. think about, you know, I'm quite vocal about them. And I talk with my friends and my family a little bit. It's important to me. And I've been so angered sometimes by the re- some of the response that we've had to the, the content by basically by people saying like, oh, a book for teens shouldn't have sexual abuse in it, or it shouldn't, be talked about, you know, this much. And it's like, well, you you know, know, like young people aren't going to experience this.
0: Exactly. I mean, unless we're living in a world where all teens and kids are protected, then this is something that's a reality. This happens. This is something that I have not ever shared before, but I have experienced sexual abuse when I was a kid. I just feel like that's something that I am not really ready to talk about. Not everybody knows at all. It's just a few people. And I mean, now it's like kind of, I guess it's out there now, but like, I'm not ready to go into the details. I think part of me is afraid to write the stories because I know it's going to come out. Like once it's out, you know, it's like it's something that you're, you're going to have to talk about, you know, and I think yeah. that's yeah. part of what's been maybe a little bit of what's been holding me back too, because I am not ready to talk about it. Um, well,
2: firstly, like you are never... No, you don't owe anyone anything. Yes, and that is yours true. to deal with as and when you are ready. And you could write something that was personal for you and that you don't, you know, you're not going to get published or That's maybe true. at some point you'll feel ready to share that story, but you aren't under any obligations to share that For anyone, you know, listen to yourself and be open and take your time because, yeah, it really took me a long time to get to a place where I could write about it this intimately. The funny thing is, like what you were just saying, like, oh, yeah, the book is going to come out and you're going to have to talk about it. I didn't even think about that. Like, Mm. I didn't realize, oh, (laughs) I wrote a book, you know, kind of critiquing rape culture and stuff like this. And I have to talk about that now. And when Mm. I went on tour, I... Was asked about it so many times, you That's know, and like, in, I'm
0: like worried. Yeah, like traumatic yeah. to relive it again and again.
2: Yes, but at the same time, there is something so incredibly empowering and strengthening about it. Mm-hmm. I have buried these incidents inside myself. And, you know, every time I get to kind of talk about it in an interview or rage about it in my writing and write about girls who fight back and, you know, learn to love themselves despite whatever they've been through. It reminds me of how powerful women are and how powerful I can be. And I get this sort of strength from it. And I met so many incredible, incredible girls on my tour who came to me and told me their stories. And it was it was just the most heartbreaking thing, some of the stories to hear. But at the same time, like them having read what happened to, to lay in the girls in my book helped them put what happened to them in perspective or at least just to give them words to think about it or to to frame it and i just think that is so incredibly powerful like what i was saying before about this kind of shared trauma like i just yeah. feel so much protectiveness over other women and other girls and i'm really now very happy that i put a bit of myself out there for some people they're taking that and they're receiving it as a bit of strength for them, and that's just incredible. And then now I'm getting strength from their response, and it's just—it is absolutely incredible. But it's not something I ever imagined or even planned or orchestrated
0: yeah. exactly. Who's been the one you find that's been the most
2: helpful in being there during this? For you? I actually started, you know. I always loved writing when I was young because I could put out my feelings and my emotions without having to sit down and tell someone them. Uh, And so I've definitely kept things for myself up until I sort of left for uni. Mm -hmm. I was very much the daughter, the child. And I did what my parents told me. And I, you know, I was like the perfect Asian daughter and I got A's on everything. And I did every sort of extracurricular activity and I didn't go out. And I had one boyfriend my whole time and I didn't ever speak to my parents really about anything personal. Callum obviously like I was saying like he's been even before we were together at 14 we were best friends from 11 oh. and he has always been there for me but even he didn't know some of the things that had happened to me and after Girls came out he read my author's note in the book which talks about you know why it was personal for me to write the book and he also had a fairy loot edition which is like this book subscription box and I had I had to write a letter to the readers and I wrote something about you know what I'd gone through and hoping that readers could find strength through the story and he called me and he was like you know I didn't want to bring it up but whenever you're ready to I'm here if you need to talk about that you know my God. Yeah. Oh, I um, have goosebumps. Yeah. What? He's incredible. And we ended up talking for two hours about that, about my sexuality as well, because I hadn't talked to him about that either. And obviously we've been together all this time. Right. And so I was like, you know, it doesn't mean I didn't love you. And he was like, I know, Tash, I understand <gasps> completely. And we talked and he, you know, told me some things about him and like, I didn't know. And it was just so amazing. And I'm Tasha, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm teary eyed right now. Oh, that I think that I don't have a lot, a lot of friends. I just have very close. Yes. Close solid. Solid few. friends exactly. you can count on. Yeah. Always.
0: Natasha, thank you so much for sharing that. And I can understand it's a very difficult thing to talk about. I'm truly so happy to hear how people have been receiving the stories and how it's healed in a way, uh, other people's traumas by reading what you wrote and how to have that conversation or start a conversation and mm-hmm. to have also your best friend like that for you. I think it, with these things you got to have at least one person who has your back and believes you without questioning.
2: Oh my god! Yeah. I think
0: that's the biggest thing that I've struggled with. Some people I opened up to, you know, the first thing was, "Are you sure? How did like how did it really happen?" And it's just like, "Wait, what? Yeah. You out of all people should be." Should never question. So I'm really, really happy that you have him in your life. Like truly, tell him. I said, "What's up? I will." I will. Like I'll seriously, be crying <laughs> listening to this. I, he's he's so sweet. Really, I'm inspired by him. Um, yeah, me too. <laughs> you know, like it's just like knowing. Also, how to it teaches us in a way, like how to be there for others. Like it taught me how to be there for a close person in my life who shared some really traumatic stories, and I'm just like, wait, how are you so like, you seem so okay. Like what is, but then I learned to not push it, but be like, you know, kind of like what Callum said, I don't want to push it, but I am here for you and I'll fight for you till the death. And I always believe you. And I want to kick that person's (laughs) ass. Like, I think it's so important that we all have that person and to learn to be that person for other people. I'm not sure if you're aware, but here we also honor some questions that listeners have put in to either our Patreon or our private Facebook group. Mm -hmm. And you were one of the most requested authors to have on the podcast in our latest round of surveying, like, who would they love to hear? No joke. They were like demanding for you and oh also <laughs> a patron of ours Tatiana Mejia she's like you need to get Natasha on no. the podcast like I am like she's a huge fan of your work so thank you Tatiana oh uh, <laughs> my gosh yes uh, honestly and then that's what kickstarted me to like ending up asking people like one more time like hey who would you love to ask on the show and no. everybody's like
2: oh my god Natasha Natasha so just know <laughs> no, you but seriously, t- like, thank you for having me like so I was so fangling like as soon as I heard your voice I was like oh my god it is Yin from <laughs> ADHD <laughs> cups of tea like (laughs) talking to me you are (laughs) so sweet seriously Natasha for uh, real I get so much comfort from your from from your podcast and this like you bring out the most incredible you know personal relatable interesting conversations from who you have on and I always get a different side of every author you know even if I've heard them on another podcast or I've you know met them in real life like Victoria Schwab is an agency sibling and you just get to see something else in that person, and you just have this skill of making someone feel at ease. So, thank oh, you, girl. Thank
0: please, thank you. you so. You just blew up my head. I cannot get <laughs> through the door right now. Thank you so much. That really means a lot, for real. Thank you so much. I'm very, very touched. If you don't mind, may I squeeze in Happy listener questions? Long, yeah. My listeners have the strength in asking the very specific. questions writer related mm-hmm. questions so I'm gonna give them the spotlight for that Um, mm-hmm. but thank you for giving me an hour and a half with you to just chat as a person and I just love getting to know you you're gonna have to hit me up when you're in New York this is gonna happen yes. we're gonna grab <laughs> tea I'm gonna have to like feed you and stuff you and like <laughs> make you so nauseous from getting so full I'm gonna have to bring you to the girlfriend's restaurant too because it's Malaysian so you're oh gonna, my god you're geez, gonna love can't it
2: wait. You yeah you gonna- can just like roll me onto the plane yes. home I don't care <laughs> Like
0: just, stop. I will get a wheelchair ready. I will rent it. Don't you worry. I got you, boo. Okay, TMI, but I have to pee so bad, but this is so good. I'm holding it. Like, I'm, so I'm not, sorry. No, 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 no. I'm just letting you know how awesome this chat is. That I'm literally about to burst my bladder. I'm like, it's going to be freaking worth it. And you know what? I'm going to have to honor Tatiana because she is the one who just came in strong and sent me a private message and was like, girl, you need to get this woman on your show. So, all right, Tatiana Mejia, we love you. You're awesome. She wrote. Oh, my God, I'm so excited. I loved paper, uh, Girls of Paper and Fire. Could you ask Natasha about worlds building and what kind of research she did for the books? And could you ask her if the hidden palace is anything like the Forbidden City in Beijing? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) That's what it reminds me of, or maybe that was the closest thing I could associate it with in Mm -hmm. my head, LOL. And one more thing, haha, (laughs) I'm a big map nerd, and I recently discovered that some of the books have maps and some don't. Where do do I get one with a map, a map of the world, not a map of the hidden palace. The hidden palace map was in mine. That might be a bit of a trivial question. So I get it if you don't get to it or any of them oh my god I
2: know I know exactly where you can get it from oh my god amazing um, okay, yes but I don't know if I think there might be some copies but it was also a subscription box, so Ooh. it's Alcrate I don't know if you know it it's a U.S. based They're one huge. and they did a oh sorry just hit the mic um so they did <laughs> a exclusive world map which was like one of my writer biggest writer dreams it looks so you good you totally got like a writer
0: boner didn't you god, <laughs> <And> yes <laughs> bam thing is up now <laughs> it was yeah <laughs>
2: It was so good. And another boner because it wraps around the, um, the end papers. So it's what? like as soon as you open the book, it's on like the inside of the hardcover. You, you know, like, yeah, oh my God, it's so nice. Wait, and, Owlcrate Create uh, was able to do this exclusively?
0: Yes. Holy what? shit. So they're massive.
2: They are huge. There's a lot of, I had to sign every, there are a lot, yeah, a lot of books. So they had the exclusive rights to that. I think you can buy the book, just the Alcrate version on their website. And if not, I can't say a hundred percent, but my publishers have told me that they want to have the map for book two and three. So oh, yes. it should, yeah, it should be on. Cause I'm also like, I love the Hidden Palace map so much. It's, it's lovely. And yes, it is definitely a huge reference to the Forbidden City. And I did a lot of research with that and read a lot of books around it and studied the architecture of, of the place. But having like a world map, I don't know. It's just so ugh. like, I am such a geography geek. I mean, I studied geography at university and as you know, oh, like I'm to building. Yeah. Like that's how much I love like. Yeah. Okay. Land.
0: Then you for real, were not getting blue balls with this situation. You were like all about
2: it <laughs> all over the place. Like, yeah, it's, so it's just the most beautiful thing ever. And what's really nice as well is there's lots of little secrets and little hints at what's coming in the next couple of books, because you'll see so much more of the world, uh, the world in the next two. So yeah, that's really exciting. So Alcrate should be on the website, and if not, books two and three. Okay, that was amazing. You just knocked out two questions and, out of oh, three. Oh, so- she wants to tweet me, sorry, just so I, I can yes, then please, take please. a picture, you know, and send please. it to her, just so she, so she can see it if she wants to.
0: Oh, that's so sweet. So can you let her know what is your Twitter, just in case she's not already? I'm sure she's already following you, but just in case other listeners want to know yes, too. Um, it's at Girl in the Lens. Perfect. Thank you so much for that. So let me remind you of the uh, the other question too, because uh, you knocked out Girl two. Yes, worlds building and what kind of research you did for the books.
2: Yeah, like we were talking about before, I luckily I really got to draw a lot on my personal history and experience and memories for this world. So it was slightly different. Like I still did my research when there were sort of stories that I wasn't, you know, like sometimes you get told stories by your parents about like cultural things. You're like, is that really true? Like, did you just... <laughs> Did you just you make just that pull up? that out of your ass? <laughs> I love mean, my mum, but she'll just like say things. It's so funny because like she'll be sitting with her and dad and she'll tell me that like, she'll be like, oh, your dad said this. And Dadishlu is like, no, I never said that in my life. <laughs> <laughs> like, She'll be telling Fab like, oh, Tasha's always saying this. And I'm like, Mom, I've never said that. <laughs> Sometimes when she tells me these things, I'm like, mm, I um, love your mom. Oh my <laughs> God, I love her so much. So I had to kind of go and dip into, you know, research around, especially like folktales and particular moments in history. So the interactions, for example, that China had with other cultures, how did colonization affect Malaysia and all these different things. And like, the you know, there's a little mention of forced assimilation in the book. And that's, yes, I did so much more research than you see. But I think what you want to do when you're creating a world is really be able to feel it breathing and have those details and that history there but you don't need to put that all in the book but I really recommend for fantasy writers to spend that time to kind of create that world and swim in it so follow what interests you like what is interesting you why did you want to write about this world in the first place and this story and what things are important about the world to know for the story and once you start having characters as well that will help you flesh out your world because all of these characters come from different different places, or maybe the same place, but like, you know, how has that upbringing affected them? And then once you have all of that, you know, to swish around in, when you write, you just kind of dip into that pool and take out little details and don't worry as well if that doesn't all come out when you're writing the first draft because for me it definitely doesn't. Often what happens is that I info dump on the first draft because it's all in my head and I'm like oh my god like the the, the reader needs to know all of this and I just like vomit up like pages um, on my Word document and then I go through and I like cut a lot of it because it's just too much and it slows the story and then over and over the next few versions I get to sort of sprinkle in the details again and then you'll find better places to sprinkle them in and Some details might not be that important, so you take them away, and then other ones you know, you realize something else you can bring in like some other detail that you didn't manage to fit in in the first time. And so it's a really fun process. I, I really love writing fantasy.
0: Damn. OK, you're going to need to teach a class one day in the future. <laughs> Just saying, along with your yoga classes, you should also <laughs> teach a world building class. That was amazing. Thank you so much. I have a feeling Tatiana is going to be so happy with that. Thank you so, so much. All right. Next, we have Elizabeth Newton, another super storyteller in our Patreon. She said, OK, you create such wonderfully vivid characters, what are some <laughs> steps you take to ensure that your secondary characters are sufficiently rounded? Oh, I like that.
2: Mm, that's great a great question. question. Yeah. yeah. And it's definitely something I've noticed had to notice more because girls there's a lot of secondary characters always like around and then the second book as well like there's a whole bunch of new ones and they're always around. Some writers are much more eloquent on this like they they can really tell exactly where the spark of an idea for every character comes from. I'm sorry I'm not more useful in that I can't really say like oh I created Aoki for this particular purpose like no she just kind of like pinged into my head but for me it usually starts with a name and a face Mm. and like something about that person and then I really, I really discover, like, my characters through writing. Like, that's why I'm such a panster. Like, I don't know what the F, f I'm doing on the first draft. <laughs> like, <laughs> I was like, keep it PG, net. Yeah, I really, like, have no idea what I'm doing. And... I think in order to know characters as well, you have to spend time with them. So I don't like write any detailed lists about the characters or their attributes or anything like that. I just sort of see them on the page. And then as they're interacting with your main character, and especially with girls because it's first person, you know, what is Lay thinking about them? And I just kind of like allow that to evolve naturally. So maybe if you want to practice that, you could put a couple of characters in a room and just have them chat about something or maybe something happens. And like, how do they both react to it because we all would react differently right and yeah. think different things and again it's quite an organic process but I I like that I think it's good and Never again feel like you have to get it right, right from the beginning. Character development is something that I really finesse in the later drafts. When I do my first draft, again, it's a bit like with the world, like I grow to know a lot about the characters. So actually in that first draft, I don't have that much detail. And then sometimes I put too much in the next one. But it's finding that balance, like knowing about the character, but what little elements can you bring in that don't overwhelm the reader? But if you know more, it always shines through, I think, in, in, in the book. Like it will just like shine through naturally. Like these are full characters that you have ideas about. And so take your time um, as you edit to kind of see like, is this character, you know, what are they sort of saying and like giving off in the draft and is it strong enough? And you can kind of, you know, just, Work your way from there. It doesn't always have to be perfect straight away. It actually never has to be perfect straight away.
0: (laughs) Okay, that's amazing. Okay, that's very helpful. Thank you so much for that. I'm going to squeeze in also Stephen McPhail's question. He's also another super storyteller in our Patreon. I loved his comment and question. It's awesome. And he's such a wonderful supporter. He wrote, (laughs) he wrote this comment. It was so funny. I want you to know how hard I'm resisting the urge to just type three lines of incoherent text in excitement for (laughs) Natasha being on the podcast. Oh my God, I was laughing so loud when he wrote that. He said, loved Girls of Paper and Fire so much. And by the way, I'm going to interject with a side note. I love how you're attracting both men and women reading these books. Like, oh, oh it doesn't I matter who, that. you know? So I just wanted yeah. to interject. But going back to what Steven said, he says, as for a question in his book, so in... Well, I should be reading in his voice. Sorry. In my book, I'm struggling balancing some serious and difficult subjects with warmer character moments and even humor. I can't help but feel it's too jarring. I Mm. think Natasha handled this beautifully in girls. So I'm wondering if she has any advice. Thanks so much. I mean, I thought that was such an awesome.
2: Wow. What is what a great question. It's always such a great question when you're like, oh, fuck, how did I do that? Right, <laughs> right. <laughs> well, give me like 10 minutes to think about. <laughs> that's um, awesome. Oh, yes, I completely get you, Stephen, because that was something that I was so painfully aware of with girls. I didn't want to, because when you're dealing with something serious, right, you want to give it enough gravity and enough importance and almost darkness, because especially if it's a dark topic, like with girls and um, sexual abuse, that's not a light thing. And, um, you want it to, to have that impact, but to not be so graphic or triggering that it's just, you know, almost like violence porn. You're not trying to like cause your readers pain in a way that oh, is difficult to, to explain. But you, you basically you want them to feel like you've really given enough strength and darkness to the topic but it's very hopeful and especially I don't know if you write YA but I find it's just like I love it because it's just so hopeful so even though characters go through these awful things or you have these dark subjects it's yeah like you said there's humor and lightness as for how to exactly do that oh god I sound so boring but again it's really in the editing like don't let that get in your way when you're writing the first draft because the first draft is just for you And it's just you finding out what is important to you about this story. And there'll be things that you didn't even realize or those things that you that you did plan for. So get it out on paper. And maybe you've already done that. Um, But then when you come to edit, have as much time as you can away from editing, uh, sorry, away from when you finish the draft and you'll come back and you'll see your words in this new light. And I think that was when I really when I was drafting uh, editing girls, sorry, I could really see ah, okay, like here, these whole chapters are very, very dark. And here, Lei suddenly makes a joke. And it's like, just after something awful has happened to someone, and like, it really doesn't feel right. When I'm writing, you know, that first draft, I can't really tell. I've just got to go with the moment and go with the flow. And sometimes you try things and you're not quite sure. Don't worry, like, that's what that's for. So get that down, but have as much distance as you can come to it as much as you can from like a, you know, a new a new reader's perspective. And something I did as well, which could help is like if you write down um, scenes or chapters on index cards or even just like I just did a list on my Word document because I'm just very lazy. And next to it, you can say like, was this kind of give it like a, um, out of 100%, how much was positive and how much was negative. Or, you know, I I kind of do that for the pace. So as well, like how much was action, how much was interior thought. And I find that really helps me balance sometimes because I'm like, wow, it's been three pages of like just interior thought or it's been three pages of just really dark, depressing crap. And that's getting a bit too much, I think. So especially if I look at the rest of the pages, and there's just like a tiny bit of lightness, and then it gets very dark again. So sometimes that can help me too. But I really think it's something that you're going to have to build a sensitivity over through the editing. And you can also ask, I don't know if you've had sensitivity readers, but we did for girls and. That was very helpful as well, you know, just to get another perspective on it. When did they feel like it was getting too much? I will say as well that you're never going to, you know, be able to sort of please everyone. Everyone reacts to difficult topics in different ways. So all you can do is the best that You feel you can do. I mean, there will still be people that it's just not right for. I've had plenty of people like that with girls who are like, oh, no, it's way too much, it's way too dark, or even like, oh, it's too light, you know? So it's a very personal balance, but you have to feel right about it. And so take your time edit edit specifically with that in mind as well like not just like that big general edit where you go over and sort of change everything really go over it and examine the scenes and examine the balance and follow it throughout so in that way you can follow like we do with the arc of a character you can follow the arc of the darkness and the lightness and the trauma and um yeah i hope that was helpful
0: that was really helpful um i'm going to weave this together with uh another question that- mm-hmm story long asked, and she's awesome. She's our new email manager here at 88 Cups of Tea as a side fact. She's lovely. She asked, Mm -hmm. so Stephen's question was more so like outwardly external, like how readers would take it in, but stories is very much about internalizing the writing process when you're writing dark things. So she wrote, she'd be curious as to whether writing a book with such heavy themes and rough scenes required more self-care than usual Mm. during the writing process. Going into the dark world she created so well I imagine wasn't easy, so I love that. I felt like that was just like the perfect way, yeah. to kind of balance those questions.
2: Yeah, that's beautiful, and I feel like we we touched on that a little bit earlier. Yes, I don't know. I'm so bad with self care. Oh my god, like I'm, you know, I'm like those people that you're just like, oh, someone cuts their tone. You're like, oh my god, are you okay? And then I just completely forget that my neck is broken or something. Like I just, I don't know. Like I'm so bad with like just stopping and being like, nah, just look after yourself. And so is so that is that when yoga comes in? Yes, yoga is my thing for like mental health, you know, like it's, it's, I mean, I obviously use it as well for my pains and things like that with my condition, but really like it has helped my mental landscape so much and like to be more positive about myself, about the world. So yeah, so I would, for example, stop and do a little bit of yoga if I just needed to breathe. But I think as well, like writing is self-care and writing about dark topics. It wasn't as hard as I would have expected let's say that someone told me like oh you're going to write this book and it's going to be about this um how do you think you would feel i might say i might have thought that i would feel it would have been a harder process but actually like i Firstly, I try and draft fairly quickly, like I did Girls in about four months, just because otherwise, like you lose that momentum and it gets very difficult to keep going. And a novel is such a big thing. So it's quite good to try and crank it out. Anyway, that's my process. But because I was sort of going through it and pushing, I didn't have like a lot of time to self-reflect. I would just get up and I would write. and But I think it was the writing that really was, yeah, looking after me. So like I was saying, I haven't I'm not that vocal about these topics, or at least I am really vocal about, let's say, rape culture, but not so much about my own personal experiences. And being able to write about characters who had who were going through similar things, you know, I was coming out with new thoughts, new new, new sort of ways to see and talk about what I had been feeling, but I hadn't been able to like place a place of language on it or words on it. And then also like, hopefully your book has characters going through tough stuff, but they are strong and they're going to get through it. And they're going to take that thing and like smash it back in that person's face. And they're going to learn and grow. And I think it sounds so cheesy, but like seeing Lei and the other girls and how they reacted and their strength to it gave me strength. So writing it, you know, I I really felt that empowerment and it's something like I was telling you earlier, Yin, like it's really helped me beyond the book. Like just to 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 feel more empowered about myself and about those things that I've I've been through. And you know, with girls, I've turned that sort of upsetness and hurt into anger. I should think, yeah, I'm not usually a very angry person, but I think it's good sometimes to have. You know, to if things are unjust, you should feel angry about it, and it motivates you know to to do something. And I think, yeah, it the writing was the self care in the end. That's so good. Thank you for that. I know
0: you're like, wait, is that a good enough answer? And I'm like, I you're know. like nodding my head like, yes, girl, keep going. It's so <laughs> damn good. This is not an easy question to answer, you know, no, especially given I really like
2: wish, I wish I could be more specific. Like, I wish I was more of a plotter and I could tell you like, oh, you should try this and do this. And like this works. But sometimes I don't even know how the hell I'm doing. Right. right? You it's, just do. You just, you just kind of you just
0: do it. it. You just yeah. wing it. And that's the thing. I mean, even with that, you were able to explain it so well. And here I am like asking you to revisit your spontaneity <laughs> and be like, give me a formula, you know? So thank like five you. years
2: ago. Yeah, <laughs> yeah.
0: exactly. So yeah. long ago. So thank you for that. There were a ton more questions, but I'm going to wrap it up with one more. Jade May Hemming, she asked in our Facebook group, she was super excited. Well, first of all, you had tons of people on our Facebook group saying how excited they are for this.
2: Oh. And so Jade, well, you can send me their messages and anyone I didn't They're get so to sweet. answer, I will happily like write back a- oh my God. an answer.
0: Oh, you're so sweet. Oh my goodness. <laughs> um, so uh, Jade wrote her question is, "What was your query process like?" So maybe that might be a
2: little bit more formulaic. That, you but you know, like no, <laughs> this is even this is like a we're gonna be like settle down, yeah. And no, I hope that, <laughs> that, <laughs> that pee has gone away because <laughs> this is, we'll get a bottle or something because this is a long shit. <laughs> so querying, I've had two agents, and so with girls, I actually had to change agent. So. I had Two Bits published in the UK a long time ago. I was I was like 22 or something. I didn't have the, the best relationship with my agent. don't really like bad-mouthing people, so I don't want to go into it too much. Yeah. But it just, you know, we didn't work out and the communication wasn't good and um, we had very different working styles. And so that sometimes happens. Sometimes you get an agent and it you think that's it, that's, that's, you know, I'm done. It's the same like when you get a publisher, like, okay, I'm set now. And then no, like you discover you know, especially through the publishing process, you discover like how much that agent is either helping you or not, you know, sometimes even holding you back. And so it took me a long time to realize that this was not the agent for me. I wrote Girls. She took a long time to read it. And then she was like, I don't like it. Oh my God. I know. And you know, the thing is like, I, I never expect anyone to like my books. So every time someone does, it's such a surprise. And so I didn't expect her to be like, oh, wow, you know, it's incredible. But just the way she was like i don't like it and i don't want to work on it you know Jeez. or just like really blocked it off i was like oh shit and i i knew that this was something that was so important it was an important story for me and it was a story i felt that you know young people needed to have access to if they wanted to and so we broke up me and my agent <laughs> and i had to go out and query again and so there I was querying for a second time and this time it's even worse because once you're when you're a debut um, publishers can really take a risk on you because you know you don't have a sort of um, you don't have sales figures already or anything like that so they don't know how well your book's going to do and if they really love it and they just you know you get lucky and they have a feeling you could have a really great deal but here I was trying to get an agent and I had to sort of explain you'll see in my query letter like oh I've actually had an agent before and I was published before and that those agents can then all go onto like book scan or something and check how many cells I got. And, you know, so I was so terrified. But I, the career letters you'll see is very simple, very formulaic. You don't need it to be anything fancy. Like literally, I think an agent will know within the first few lines, like, is this something I'm interested in? Mm. Just like when someone tells you like with a book, like, oh, it's about this. And you're like, wow, that's cool. You know, or, like, oh, okay, I'm not really sure. I think it's the same for agents. Then they'll sort of read your first um, few chapters or whatever it is that you've attached, and they can really tell from that whether they want to read on. So, with girls, I sent it out, and it was like months. I think it was like two months or something, and I hadn't heard anything. And it was funny because my first process, I had an offer in two days. And so I was like, ooh, this is taking a long time, even though obviously now I know it's very normal. And also we were on submission, me and my new agent, um, with girls for one year. And like that felt like a long time. (laughs) So yeah, and then eventually I got an offer and it spiralled and I was very lucky with girls. I had 11 offers in the end. And I think, you know, a lot of agents were just, were hopeful as well, like me. Like, yes, this is a book that I want to bring to young people. And so I was very lucky and I... The way I chose my agent was who do I feel like I can be myself the most with and be most at ease, both with talking to and also creating. Like, you know, when you, when you meet an agent or speak to them, you want to know what do they see um, for your future. Talk to other authors that they represent and find out how they are treated. All agents at some level will have the same access to the same editors. And at some level, they'll all be kind of, Similar, like You should be okay with a lot of them, but you really want to feel very much yourself and comfortable with that agent because you're going to have to write more books. I think sometimes we just think like, oh, it's just this first book, you know, like this one book that we query with and that's it. But no, this agent hopefully is going to represent you for a long time. And so you want to make sure that you have the same vision for your, for your future. Yeah. I can send you over my query letter and you can, you can see that. And, oh my God. Um, I'm so excited. So, cause I noticed you have Taylor Haggerty at oh, root. So, so, great. so oh do God, you apply to her by the way? Like she's incredible. So whoever, whoever wants to apply to her, I really highly recommend her.
0: Oh my God. Amazing. Um, so wait, did you apply to her or did you apply to Holly root?
2: And That's then so- her- I actually applied to Holly so yeah I even forgot about that um so Holly was just going on maternity leave and she was like look I've read your book and I loved it but I'm about to go on maternity leave and also like my fellow agent Taylor she's quite a new agent but like she's incredible Um she also read the book and she's got like heart eyes and everything and I like, came in dancing like oh my god this book so would you be interested in perhaps you know speaking to her and so the three of us had a Skype and it was so funny because Holly was so pregnant. She was at home she, <laughs> and she she was just getting on Skype. And then her husband like walked past like fully naked and he didn't realize. She was. <laughs> oh, my God, uh, I love that. Yeah, We were like, oh, well, that's... <laughs> (laughs) oh my god you guys got close real quick i know i i I got on with them so well from the beginning and i just but i also really trusted in taylor because it had come you know holly had really trusted her and so i think that's a great way to find agents is look at the authors that you think are similar to your book um that you know that your book could fit really comfortably alongside and who represents them and then you know like okay firstly they're into the sort of stuff that i'm writing and then also you know they've got their this they're also this far and so hopefully they have a good relationship and oh, and wh- so whatever happens never feel like it's the end of the world because i've lost an agent you know had to get a new one mm. i've had a book that i wrote that didn't sell this book took one year to sell and we had loads of problems with it like just keep going your stories are important and i believe in you
0: You are amazing, Natasha. Seriously, you gave us over two hours of brilliant stories and advice and suggestions and info. What is a book that you would recommend that others read, whether it's a craft book to help them with their writing or
2: something that really blew you away and inspired you with world building? I've read so many incredible books recently, but I think my favorite, you've had her on the show, um, R.F. Kuang. She wrote Poppy War. Have you read it, Yang? Yes,
0: it is so good. She's brilliant she's a very very strong writer I was immediately captivated like
2: such a powerhouse forceful book and it I think for me what really touched me as well was that it was because it's sort of a fantasy retelling of 20th century Chinese history and again like I said earlier I'm not really that Chinese in a way or like mainland Chinese and so I'm a bit detached from that History, like I know a lot about Malaysian sort of history and the the racial problems and, and certain things going on there. But my grandfather, he moved from China to Malaysia to escape during the war, and so I didn't really know, you know, like they don't really talk about it, and I didn't really understand what gone on, and I learned so much through Rebecca's book and the way that she portrayed some of the things that happened during the war, I think were just so they were just so incredibly dark. That is also for I think it was Stephen, wasn't it? That is a great book to read in terms of balancing darkness with light because it's very dark. It's very heavy, but she does in a lot of humour and a lot of warm moments. Like it's brilliant. Yeah.
0: Okay, we'll have that listed. Thank you for mentioning that. By the way, where
2: can we find you? I know we have your Twitter, but where Mm -hmm. else are you online? So I'm on Instagram on exactly the same at girl in the lens. I used to run a fashion blog, and so that's what that name comes from. Um, Natasha Young, if you have like .com, if you want to come and send me a message, but I'm really most active on Twitter. But otherwise, you can drop me an email. You can find that through Natasha. Young and um, yeah, DM on Instagram and I'm I just love speaking to readers and I love chatting like writing craft and everything. So I'm very happy to to answer questions.
0: Oh, you're the best. <laughs> you're so sweet and so thoughtful. Thank you so much. And that wraps up our episode with Natasha Nyan. Natasha, I had so much fun talking with you. Thank you so much for creating such a beautiful representation of Malaysian culture and Girls of Paper and Fire and for being so open and vulnerable throughout our conversation. You are incredible. Thank you, thank you. Storytellers, thank you for hanging out and listening in. As always, to download the query letter that Natasha wrote to her literary agent for Girls of Paper and Fire, head over to Natasha's show notes page at 88 cupsofteacom slash podcast slash Natasha dash Nyan and scroll to the end of the page. Please be sure to also drop by and say hi to Natasha on Twitter at Girl in the Lens. At the top of the show, you heard my chat with New York-based writer and screenwriter Ben Phillip, whose debut novel, The Field Guide to the North American Teenager, just released this week. As you learned in our discussion, The Field Guide to the North American Teenager is an own voices novel about cranky, clever, and ultimately endearing Norris Kaplan as he moves from his native Montreal to Austin, Texas, and experiences the cliches and joys of the American high school experience most notable of which is falling in love. I also promised at the top of the show that you can hear the second half of Ben's interview at the end of this episode, where he discusses the realities of being a writer and the rejections he's had to go through and how he managed to protect his love for writing. And here it is. Ben, also, I do want to weave into your own personal life, too, how you're able to find time to write your books.
1: At the time when I started the book, I was working in digital marketing. For performing arts venue here in the city. Ooh. And now I'm teaching full-time at Barnard College in Columbia, which is... Oh, well, excuse approach. me, Mr. Oh, Smarty Pan. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think it kind of accidentally became a career path for me because I remember when I was trying to juggle, you know, writing in my spare time with a full-time day job in marketing, it was really difficult because I was just drained by my day job. I, it wasn't a horror story. My coworkers were really nice, but it really is hard to juggle like 40, 45 hours of work every week with being your best creative self. And teaching started as just a way of making ends meet. I was teaching one class per semester and they've steadily increased my uh, course load. So now I'm teaching full-time on top of writing. And I just really love it. There's something about, because they're all undergrad students and I teach cool stuff like (laughs) writing for television and screenwriting. Uh, Yeah, I lucked out. It's been a really nice surprise because you're able to feed off the creativity of all these undergrads that just have like so many stories they want to tell. They want to write their first screenplay. They want to direct their first short film. And it doesn't drain me at all. I'm able to spend all day talking about story and structure with them and then come home and still manage to live in my own head. But I know. And that was sort of me lucking out and finding the perfect day job. It's really, really difficult. Uh, I don't know if I have any wisdom to share it beyond the fact that it's something I feel like every writer deals with. I think when I was starting to write, everyone that I really admired, if you Google them, their job was just writer. So you just imagine these people sipping tea in a beautiful lake house writing while sort of like taking a bite out of a perfectly burnt piece of toast. (laughs) (laughs) And the truth is, no, these people still work for their families, they need health insurance, all the unfun stuff that make us real people. Mm. That's stuff that they all deal with. And I really admire writers who are very open about talking about that, not that they're sort of giving screenshots of their checking accounts, but they're just ready to acknowledge that I love writing. It's not the thing I do to fully support my life. And it takes effort, it takes a bit of dedication to be able to sort of put time aside to do it. And I would always encourage people to, and this is where it sounds very cheesy, but to be kind to themselves. Mm -hmm. And no, you weren't able to write your book in one month in November, because somebody decided that like, hey, we're all gonna write a full novel during the month of November. That's okay. If you're able to set some time aside and just prioritize your ideas and arrange them, it's okay if it takes you a year or two years to get your idea on paper. And one of the pieces of advice I give to all my students is to look out after their own emotional well-being. Because the truth of the matter is that there is a lot of rejection before you find the agent that's going to say yes, before you find the editor or the publisher that's going to say yes, you're going to hear a lot of no's. and I I love the fantasy of being able to say that like, oh, I just brushed that off. Like every no fuels me to move forward. But the truth of the matter is that sometimes when all your hopes and eggs are in one basket, once you hear that no, it's usually a very short email <laughs> or very short phone call. It's okay to be a little devastated. It's okay for that to be a wound. Uh, my advice is to be kind to yourself and not to leave yourself open to too many wounds. So. I used to be, when I was in grad school, I was the guy who would submit short stories to every publication through, there's a website I won't name because it sounds like I'm trash talking them. (laughs) I'm not. It's a great service that allows you to submit to like every literary magazine out there. But I would always, whenever they had contests, whenever they had like open submission piles, I would always send my stuff out. And what would happen would be that two, three months later, it would be like a column of like rejections, like all your short stories, all your pitches would have the word rejected next to it, and it would affect me. It would sort of like oh, kill my drive to move forward. So mm. at some point, I decided that I'm just gonna submit three projects per year, something that's really polished, something that I'm really proud of, and I'm gonna allow myself to be hopeful about putting that stuff out there. Uh, whereas when I submitted, say 37, which I did once. <laughs> wow. Um, yeah, seeing a column of like 32 no's, really it gets to you. I just have to like be honest with myself and say that I'm not the writer that I need a little bit of praise once in a while. I need to be able to call my best friend or my mom and say, "Hey, tell me I'm the best thing to happen to the written language." <laughs> and my mom would be like, "I was in church. Is this urgent?" I'm just saying, "Mom, tell me. Tell me." Like the best thing. I was like, okay, that was a random lie. You don't really understand where it's coming from, but uh, <laughs> I needed that little bit of validation.
0: I had the biggest smile on my face because I was like, wow, he could not have ended this even more perfectly. <laughs> that was truly so helpful. We appreciate transparency here. Thank you. Before we wrap it up, please let the listeners know where they can find you, where they could keep up to date with your happenings about your book that just released. And also about your future things.
1: It all boils down to Twitter these days. Uh, fortunately, unfortunately, I'm at go home, Ben, all one word. And <laughs> where you will find me vomiting every thought and then deleting half of them like, all day, every day. And also promoting tours and appearances and all that cool stuff for the field guide to the North American teenager.
0: Amazing. Okay, one last note. Don't delete your tweets that you're vomiting out. You got to be like Norris and keep it up there and be like, yeah, and that's who I am. And that's cool.
1: I, I <laughs> honestly, I tried to, but then I remember like students. Oh, me,
0: wait. Okay, that's it, different. Yes. <laughs> and we live in
1: weird political times, but it's not even like political rants. It's just be like, oh, I'll be in line at Whole Foods and it'll be like this vitriol against somebody who's confused (laughs) by the line system. And it's vitriol about the line system because it's so complicated for no reason. And so then I was like, yeah, I need to delete the the last seven weeks.
0: Damn, (laughs) that's like the perfect reason to follow you. I would totally follow you for that. So that is awesome. Ben, thank you so much. I loved having you on and I'm so excited for listeners to learn more about you and to hear from you. Thanks, Ian. Hey, storytellers. How good was that? I am so impressed that Ben was able to make time to write his fiction stories on top of teaching screenwriting at Barnard, all while dishing out relatable and helpful real talk along the way. His debut novel is available everywhere books are sold. You can learn more about the field guide to the North American teenager over at epicreads.com. And to learn more about Ben, head over to benphilip.com. Have a super productive week and I'll catch you not next Thursday, but the one after that. Hey guys, it's me again. Thanks so much for listening in on 88 Cups of Tea. Go create something magical today and I'll catch you in the next episode. Bye.